We bow our heads in prayer. Grant, Lord, that I might not speak with plausible words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and your power. That our faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As I, uh, as I read the lessons in preparation for today, and especially as I read uh, 1 Timothy, uh, Paul's letter to his dear son in Christ, his dear spiritual son, uh, who was in charge of the church in Ephesus and had a lot of responsibility. As I, as I read these lessons... I was reminded of a famous speech by, of all people, Teddy Roosevelt to a group of men in Chicago in 1899. I know that you've heard part of this speech. Uh, in speaking to you, men of, in speaking to you, don't get excited, Doug, by the way. In speaking to you, men of the greatest city of the West, Men of the state which gave to the country Lincoln and Grant, men who preeminently and distinctly embody all that is most American in the American character, I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life. Not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and of effort, of labor and strife, to preach that highest form of success which comes not to the man who desires mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil. And who out of these wins the splendid ultimate triumph. I'm not sure entirely what Teddy Roosevelt meant by the ultimate triumph, but I know what Paul meant by the ultimate triumph. And Paul says he preaches not the doctrine of ignoble ease. That ought to send bells off in your heads who heard the lesson today. Woe unto those who are at ease in Zion. Ignoble ease. And to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Woe to those who lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves out upon their couches. I like the translation that Courtney read. Who sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of a harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. By the way, there is nothing wrong with feasting. The Bible commends it to us. It commends musical instruments. It commends making music. And like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls it doesn't even condemn wine, which gladdens the heart. It does condemn drunkenness, but who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You're at ease in Zion, but you are not grieved over the ruin of God's people. You're at ease in Zion. Oh, you're sprawled out on beautiful couches and everything's wonderful like 
the rich man who ignores poor Lazarus. And we hear very stern warnings in today's uh, epistle about those who are rich and live for themselves. Warn them, Timothy. Warn them. In contrast to this ignoble ease, those who are at ease in Zion, we have something very different in 1 Timothy. We have the apostle's advice to his dear son, commending to him, if you will, the strenuous life. Now, as Father TJ so beautifully reminded us last week, um, this is not written just to Timothy or just for Timothy. We're not reading somebody else's mail here. Okay? It was meant to be shared with the church. It's written for us as well. He's not just talking to Timothy when in chapter 1 he says, wage the good warfare. The strenuous life. He's not just talking to Timothy when he talks about who's qualified to be a pastor and who isn't. Uh, how we are to order our life in the church. What are the false teachings we're supposed to resist? As he gives Timothy all this advice, it's not just for Timothy, it's for us. This is what you're to believe. And believing that, this is how you're to act. This is what life in the church ought to look like. I am writing these things to you, says St. Paul in chapter 3. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know, in case I'm delayed, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the church, which is the church of God, the house of God, household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. I used to put that, this question to my students uh, at ACS when we got to uh, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church in the creed and I, and I would put to them according to the Bible what's the pillar of the truth, the thing that holds the truth up, what's the bulwark the foundation on which it's built and which protects it oh the Bible well that's an interesting answer, it's not what the Bible says what the Bible says is the pillar and bulwark of the truth is the church. And Paul concludes this letter with this. I love these words. He starts with wage the good warfare. I want you to know how to behave in the church. Here's what you have to believe. Here's what you have to do. Wage the good warfare. But as for you, O man of God... Shun all this. The Greek is uh, all that, the bad stuff he's just been talking about. Um, right before this, he's been talking about uh, living for yourself and also gathering for yourself teaching that you like as opposed to the teaching that's there. As for you, O man of God, shun all this and aim at righteousness. Shun means, the Greek word is fuge. Which word we get fugitive from. Flee it. Run away from it. Get away from it. That's false teaching. That's bad behavior. Get out of here. Run away from it. And aim at, and that's, I've, I don't actually like my translation here. Um, aim at is, uh, the, the Greek is dioke, pursue, run after. 
strive after. So in other words, run away from the bad stuff, run after the good stuff. And then he says, fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Fight the good fight of the faith. Again, uh, this word came up in a sermon I did on, on Hebrews 12 a few, few weeks ago. On, um, the Greek word is agonizo. It's the Greek word agon. Struggle the good struggle of the faith. Race the good race of the faith. Agonize the good agony of the faith. Put every effort into it. You know, I love, don't you love the old hymns, stretch every nerve? You know, just throw yourself into it. This is the strenuous life, the strenuous Christian life, which, may I commend to you, is the only life worth living. It really is. Everything else is dust and sawdust and blah. This is it. This is life. And I love, I love what Paul says, and take hold of the life which is life indeed. And the Greek means, which is really life. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Take hold of the life, which is life indeed. But that's a life of struggle. That's a life of effort. We can't do it on our own. Only by the grace of God can we do it. But it is a strenuous life. God, give me strength. Help me to do it. I want to run with endurance the race that is set before me. I want to run. I just spoke with the young ladies I'm coaching in cross country recently about chariots of fire. You know, and when, Jenny, God made me for the purpose for China, but he also made me fast. Don't you love that? And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Yes. Yes, that's it. That's it. And by the way, you in that scene where he says that to Jenny, in, on Arthur's seat in Edinburgh, I used to run there all the time. I saw that. I just got goosebumps. I start, probably started crying, you know. But he also made me fat. And when I run, when I put in the effort, when I strive, that's when I feel the joy. Not when I'm at ease in Zion. Not when I'm laying back on my couch of ease. Not when I'm snuggling, not struggling. I've heard, I've heard preachers say that. Don't wrestle, just nestle. Oh, that, that sounds lovely. It's not what the Bible says. For we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. It, it's all this wonderful, strenuous life throughout 1 Timothy to this young pastor and to us. And then he concludes with these words. And these are the words that leapt off the page at me. In the midst of all this, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. How does he end it all? I've given you all this advice, Timothy, what to teach, how to teach it, how to order the church, how we're to live. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Beloved in the Lord, you and I, along with our brother Timothy, have been entrusted with a great treasure. We have been given a holy responsibility. We have been handed something 
which is a treasure of unspeakable value, the pearl of great price, a treasure in the field. We've been given that. You've been entrusted with this, and Scripture is clear. And we are accountable for it. How did we use what's been given to us? How did we handle that with which we've been entrusted? It's in our care. And on that great day, we will answer for it. What was it that was entrusted to Timothy? What was it that was entrusted to us? Uh, you can almost hear Timothy saying, okay, so Paul, exactly what do you mean by that? Because the very next letter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14 says, guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit. You're to guard the truth. Right before that, he says, follow the pattern of the sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you. It's the truth. What are we, what's this treasure? It's the truth. And by the truth, we don't just mean the doctrine, though it's very clear Paul means that. We are to resist with Timothy all false teaching. You and I are to know the faith. And by the way, not just I, you, the people of God, are to know the truth. One of the best defenses against heresy is a laity who know their faith. We're all to be disciples, learners. So, hold fast. So it's the doctrine, what we believe. I had someone at um, the school once say to me, oh, no, 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 enough about the doctrine. That's too academic. Enough about the doctrine. That's too academic. Let's just talk about spiritual growth. And I explained to them that to love someone with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind means that you want to know them as they truly are and not as you wish they were. It's to love them for who they truly are and not who you're making them in your image. That's with anybody, let alone God. To love God is to care about the truth about him. You don't love anyone if you don't want to know the truth about them. And I said to this, this guy, if you don't care about doctrine, please don't tell me you love God. Because you don't. If you don't care about doctrine, don't tell me you love God. Because you don't. You love an experience. or you love, I don't know. But it's not just doctrine. If you read 1 Timothy, there's a lot in there on how we're to act, too. How we're to behave. If this is so, then I should do X, Y, and Z. It's both what Paul calls, it's both doctrine and discipline. It's teaching and behavior. It's words and works. The whole thing is the faith. The whole thing is the truth. The truth, 
the apostolic faith, the truth of Scripture. Now, get, please get this. The truth of Scripture and not your personal truth of Scripture. That was the problem with the Gnostics who were preaching their own opinions. It's, please get this right. Remember, St. Paul is, when St. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, he's writing Scripture. So what's the scripture he's talking about there that's God-breathed? It's the Old Testament. But he's already telling them, hold on to the faith. We don't even have the canon of the New Testament yet. Not complete. But still hold on to the faith. They were already being taught the faith by the apostles. They already had it. That's why they were in very good the early church was in a better place than we are to determine what belongs in Scripture and what doesn't. They knew the apostles. Those early church fathers, some of whom sat at the feet of the apostles, like blessed Polycarp, who sat at the feet of John. I mean, wasn't that cool? Or Paul, or Clement, writing to the church in Corinth. Now, do you remember that letter Paul sent you? And I, I remember the first time I read that going, holy cow, he's talking to people that got 1 Corinthians in the mail. <laughs> he's talking to people that knew St. Paul. I think they're in a better place to judge what the faith is than I am. To judge the canon of Scripture than I am. And by the way, when they finally came up with the canon of Scripture, it didn't matter if it was from Palestine to Britannia, they all agreed, which is amazing. That's, that's really amazing. I, I see God's hand on it, the whole thing. But the point is, there was a faith that you were to receive. It was the faith of the church. When the great Arian heresy arose in the 4th century, when that heresy arose and Arius was teaching very cleverly, using Scripture, that Jesus is not fully and eternally God. That there was, the great catchphrase of the Arians was, there was when he was not. He's a creature, the greatest of creatures, divine in some sense, but he's not fully and eternally God. Oh, well, if he's not fully and eternally God, how can he fully and eternally save me? How can he fully and eternally pay for my sins? And if he's not fully and eternally God, what are you doing worshiping him? Is it idolatry? And when the church argued these out, bringing them up to the Council of Nicaea, they argued, yes, Arius, you're using scriptures. The only begotten. Oh, see, he was begotten. Firstborn of all creation. See, he was born. Was, there was when he was not. But they were ignoring other scriptures. They weren't looking at the whole of Scripture, but the other argument, just as weighty for them was, oh, and by the Arius, we've never believed that. That's never been the faith of the church. We've been around for 300 years at this point. That's not the faith. That's why it caused so much trouble, because when he started to teach it, people were going, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute, why? Well, we've just never believed that. It's not the faith. It's not what we believe. It's not what the church teaches. Sometimes this 
faith of the church is also called the great tradition. And in the 5th century, there was a Gallic monk named St. Vincent of Laurent. Is that saying that right? L-E-R-I-N-S? Laurent? Yeah, Laurent. Um, St. Vincent of Laurent was a Gallic monk who wrote something called the Commonatorium, which was, he wrote as much for himself as anyone else on basically a rule for, for discerning the Catholic faith, which simply meant the universal faith of the church, the Catholic faith from, when you converted to Christ from a heresy, you became a Catholic Christian. That was what it was called. Um, to determine the faith, Catholic faith from heresy. How do I discern that? And in that, he wrote, Moreover, in the Catholic Church itself, and again, what was meant was not Roman Catholic, but the Catholic as opposed to the heretics. All right? Moreover, in the Catholic Church itself, all possible care must be taken that we hold that faith, now listen, which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. That faith which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. Quod ubique, quod semper, quod ab omnibus creditum est. That's been called the Vincentian canon, the rule. The, the, the rule by which you measure all the rest. What Vincent was saying, and what the church has taught ever since is, if you, oh, I don't know, if uh, you, Robbie Fuchs, come up with an interpretation of Scripture which makes sense to you, it seems the plain sense of the passage, and you come up with it here in the 21st century, and no one else in church history has ever taught that or believed it, you're wrong. That's the message. Seek the ancient paths where the good way is. You know, what have we always believed? If it's not that, it's not the faith. David Mills once asked Philip Hughes, uh, Philip, he said, said to him, Philip, you're what I call a Catholic evangelical. And Philip said, was a great scholar, goes, oh, David, what do you mean by that? A great scholar, he goes, well, let's say from your personal study of Scripture, you came up with, in this case they were talking about women's ordination, but you could do it on abortion, you could do it on any number of things. You came up and said, you know, I think this is right. What would you do? He said, I'd go back and study it again. And then I'd go back and study it again. Why? Because I can't imagine all Christendom being wrong and Philip Hughes being right. I just can't imagine it. They're not all wrong and I'm right. G.K. Chesterton once said, a Catholic Christian is someone who thinks somebody else is smarter than he is. He also referred to the tradition as the democracy of the dead. He said, I believe my ancestors ought to have a vote. I simply refuse to submit myself to the tyrannical oligarchy of the living. What makes us think we're so smart? So, Vincent went on to say, and this is really important, folks, and I, I really want you to hear this. Uh, if I can find my own notes. Here we go. 
What is entrusted to you, says Vincent, you and me, what is entrusted to you is not what you have discovered. It is what you have received, not what you have thought up for yourself. It's the faith, as Jude puts it, once delivered. Once for all delivered to the saints. It is what you have received, not what you have thought up for yourself. It is a matter not of ingenuity, but of doctrine. Not of personal opinion, but of public tradition. Now here it is, listen. You are not the author, but the guardian. Hear that? You're not the author. You're the guardian. So preserve inviolate and undamaged the trust of the Catholic faith. This is the treasure which has been entrusted to us, beloved. You and I are not free to play with it. We're not free to rewrite it. We are not free. We're free to study it. And by the way, if... Again, I love Lewis on this. If you try to be original, you'll probably fail. If you try to be true, you may also end up being original. We're not free to rewrite it. We're not free to conform it to our own opinion. We're not free to make it change with the times. We're free to make the times change with it. It's not old-fashioned. It's just really, really old. And whatever is not eternal, beloved, is eternally out of date. Fashions change, opinions change, cultures change. But the faith once delivered, this sacred trust which has been given us, the faith, that's eternal. The word of God endures forever. And we're not free to change it. We're not free to play with it. We're not free to rewrite it. We're not free to conform it to our opinions. We're free to guard it. We're free to fight for it. We're free to defend it. We're free to spread it. We're free with Timothy, our brother, to guard what's been entrusted to us. We can't do it on our own. God grant that we do so. For it's of infinite value. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.